If you are in the 81% of aspiring authors out there, stop aspiring and start writing with Readsy. Readsy allows indie authors to find and work with the best publishing professionals, from developmental editors to book cover designers to publicists. Just sign up for an author profile, browse the extensive marketplace of professionals, find the best fit for your project, and set a collaboration in motion. And with built-in contracts, protection, and mediation from Readsy, finding qualified freelancers, editors, designers, and marketers as a self-published author just got a lot easier. Go to readsy.com today to sign up and set your first collaboration in motion. That's R-E-E-D-S-Y dot com. There's distinct stages and you should expect those stages, challenges and setbacks. I still don't really understand how I do it. It's going to be work and you're going to suffer for your art. (laughs) That sort of story is inspirational to a lot of wannabe writers out there who feel they have a book in them but are living a totally different life at the moment. And and the answer to that, I think, is both. You know, it's going to be exciting, you're going to have breakthroughs, and you're also going to suffer and have setbacks, and that's all part of the same journey. Taking a book the whole nine yards, from an idea in your head to words on a page, from a scribble on a napkin to a listing on Amazon, that's easier said than done. But it's also easier than you'd think. I'm your host, Casimir M. Stone, and this is Readsy's Bestseller, the podcast demystifying the process of self-publishing a book for aspiring novelists everywhere, one episode at a time. This is Season 4, Chapter 3, Reading the Right Way. So apparently, enlightenment came from reading, at least according to Ian Watt, a professor-turned-author of seminal nonfiction. In The Rise of the Novel, Watt argues that mass publication created a so-called reading public, average people who all of a sudden could spend a couple hundred pages immersed in someone else's perspective. In theory, this changed the way that we, on a whole, viewed other people. Classical idealism was replaced with a rational, realistic understanding of human behavior, rooted in the truths of other people's individual experiences as gleaned from novels. Through fiction and creativity, we learn to better understand ourselves. I wanted people who are reading this to be like, I, I'm going to take my own journey and make it my own. You know, Whatever kind of baggage other heroes' journey narratives might have, this is going to be my hero's journey. So it's unsurprising that reading played a major role in the creative process of Tim Segalski, our subject this season and author of The Creative Journey, a nonfiction textbook he was in the process of writing for a class on creativity he'd pretty much just made up. But now, with a curriculum ready to teach and a class ready to learn, Tim found himself facing a new challenge. After two decades in creative industries, he had plenty of information to pass on, but he had to pass it on to people with fundamentally different experiences than his own. Even today, I think of it as as a book that's written for uh, Gen Z and their struggles and their desires and dreams and hopes. Um, and so I kind of see it also as a younger version of myself, but, you know, they have their own uh, world that they live in. And so Tim had to switch perspectives once again. Yeah. You know, keeping, keeping an audience in mind, you know, um, what would they get out of it or what would, what would be lacking for them? Um, if, if they were to read this is kind of what, what I kind of try to keep in mind. We've talked a lot about the importance of audience feedback for indie authors, hiring a professional editor, giving drafts to friends, family, or beta readers, anything you can do to look at your own work from someone else's perspective. You know, what they always say is have an ideal 
audience member in mind and that ideal reader. And um, so if you don't already know your, your audience, it's like, why are you writing for them? Um, <laughs> until like you understand who they are and what they, what they want. And Tim did have an ideal reader, even if it was one that was chosen for him. Then I also have to take in the considerations of the class. So it was, it was written for, and I had to really get in the mindset of, um, and consider what does a 21-year-old need to know about creativity? What do they want to know about creativity? What do I need to teach them? Last episode, that question was front of mind for Tim, as he did research to answer it. But now he had new questions. Could he actually teach them? Were they prepared to learn from him? To find the answer, he did what all authors have to do. Look at your own work from an audience's perspective. Tim, however, did it the OG way. By reading. So I just read voraciously. If you go to a writing professor's office hours, that's probably the first creative advice you'll get. Read. And as we covered last week, it is a big part of nonfiction research, too. But that advice is as important as it is impractical. When you read, it's usually for entertainment, information, or both, which might be entertaining or informative, but it won't magically make you a better writer. You know, like, how does it fit into the genre? Like, not just like, I like this book or not, but, you know, like, who would like this kind of book? You know, if, if, if this book is for me or not, is it's only part of the question. It's more, what could others get from this book? Who would be seeking it? Who would want this book? Um, what was the author's intent? What were they trying to do? Did they succeed in that intent or not? And, and just become a lot more informed, in my opinions, you know, um, give, give context rather than just, than just your opinion. Lately, other writers have realized the importance of reading, too, which is why there's not just reading anymore. Now, there's reading like a writer. Reading Like a Writer was made rather recently famous by Francine Prose, yet another essayist-turned-teacher-turned-author in her 2006 book of the same name. It also appeared in essays by USC's Mike Bunn, FSU's Wendy Bishop, and probably most other college writing professors out there in one form or another. Seeing a pattern yet? Just one of the more recent examples of nonfiction teaching new perspectives on ancient practices. The idea is pretty simple. Writers do have to read to get better, but rather than reading for the plot or facts and thinking about whether a book is good or at the very least useful, when you're reading like a writer, you're supposed to ask yourself why it is the way it is. What choices did the author make? Why did they make them? Would you make the same? Remember that someone typed out each letter, learn how the book was built, and then theoretically you can build your own. And finally, pro stumps for reading for courage. If nothing else, it's helpful to realize that everyone else has their own obstacles in their own creative journey. That's something Tim realized, and in the end, it was the turning point that helped him connect with the next generation. But it didn't happen overnight. No, just like with so much else in his journey, taking his audience's perspective was, for Tim, its own creative process. How long have you been writing reviews? Um, you know, for Readsy, I've been doing reviews for, I think, a year or so. Um, you know, I can't remember when they started their marketplace reviews, but it was pretty, pretty soon after that. My own reviews, like I've, I've done journalistic reviews for a long time. This season actually came about when I first found Tim's writing on Discovery, Readsy's new platform for authors to submit books for review and review others. 
But like Tim said, he's been doing it on his own for much longer, ever since he studied journalism in college, decades before he started teaching himself. I took a class in college called Critical Writing, which is all about reviews, reviewing different genres, everything from architecture to concerts. So I've been doing reviews for 20 years, and I've done... um, I remember I did a review. I had no idea what I was doing uh, as a college kid doing a restaurant review. Back then, it didn't go quite so well. The food critic, the restaurant critic who, who visited our class that week, did critiques of everyone's reviews. And he gave everyone such bad grades um, that the professor was like, you know, I'm not going to actually use his grades because he thought everyone did a terrible job. <laughs> Tim's first review bombed for one big reason. He wrote it from his own perspective. I remember that very well because he he left like red ink everywhere on the paper. I did a review of a Chinese restaurant and I, I had no idea what I was talking about or what I should be looking for in the food. I just didn't have any context or basis. So I like it made like fun of like what something looked like. And he wrote on, on there like, never make fun of what the food looks like. He's like, the food that has nothing to do with what it tastes like. Um, he's like, that shouldn't be part of your review. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, I didn't know what I was supposed to talk about. Um, so I guess I won't talk about that. But what it taught me to do is I should, I should learn more before I open my mouth. You know, I should learn more about what the, what the context for the food was and what the, you know, the chef was trying to do and, and, and just be more informed in my opinions, not just like, I like this or I don't like this or this looks weird. But with all those nonfiction takes on reading like a writer still years away from publication, firsthand experience was the only way for Tim to learn. He gave such good critical feedback about how you could make a review better and stronger and what you shouldn't do that it really resonated with me. It also like just left an impression on me as just how impactful a review is for the person who's getting it uh, because you're giving you know critical feedback for them. You want it to you want it to really mean something and resonate. When you read or experience something, it's easy to collect and share your own thoughts, which is great if you're only writing for yourself. But when you're writing reviews and nonfiction in general, you're writing to educate. So the trick Tim found is to put yourself in someone else's shoes. One of the big reasons I I wanted to do reviews is it exposes me to new work and new authors and new voices and new ways of writing. Granted, not all writers are going to want to spend their downtime reviewing other books. It's hard enough to finish your own, but it's a great example of how reading from different perspectives can improve your own. I I feel like it gives back, you know, like I love to, to hear feedback on my book and hear what people think of it and, you know, if there's anything that resonated with them or what I could do better. And so I know that I could do that for others as well. There was a book I recently reviewed, uh, Spiritual Rebel. It was, it was probably my favorite book of 2019. It, was re- it really was similar to my thinking and my style and what I wrote about. And so I wrote a review. I'll give it a five-star review. And uh, the author, um, she quoted my review in her trailer, her book trailer. And it won an award, one of the like, indie, indie bookseller of the year. And I, I said, you know, well-deserved. And she replied back and said, like, you know, your, your review made me emotional. Um, and that felt good because when people, I, I got emotional when someone else, you know, did my review and, and said, you know, that's exactly what I wanted people to think of, you know, and, and get from my book. So if I can do that for someone else as well in an authentic and real way, because that book really did resonate with me, uh, then I want to do that. 
You can actually read that very review on Readsy Discovery, our newest platform and a good place to find new books to read. And you can follow Tim on Discovery as well to get more of his hot takes on the books he's reading. I'll leave a link to both in the show notes. But when it did come time for Tim to hear feedback from others, that didn't go quite so well either. My wife read the you know early drafts of my book and uh, she couldn't get past like the first chapter. And I was like, what's wrong with it? And, and she's like, it just was boring. With his extensive background in review writing, journalism, and creativity in general, it was hard at first for me to understand why Tim stumbled so much on his creative journey. After years of telling other people's stories, you would think that taking other perspectives would be his first instinct, wouldn't you? Well, turns out, it was. It started as kind of a dry academic view of what creativity is in a scientific way. And I cited a lot of studies and I cited a lot of research papers. But what I was doing is I was trying to be someone I'm not to try to appeal to what I thought that like the health science major would want. Um, what I thought like a business student or an engineering student, I'm like, well, I really have to be serious or I'll never be taken seriously. The problem was Tim focused a little too much on his ideal reader's perspective. Hyper-focused about what the kids these days are into, Tim wound up giving them something that wasn't true to himself. And so because of that, it didn't really resonate with them either. I was like, I'm a storyteller. I was trained to be a storyteller and that's what I love doing. So why am I trying to be a science writer? Fortunately, it was a pretty easy fix. When it comes to keeping readers informed and engaged, indie nonfiction experts like Joanna Penn of The Creative Pen mostly suggest the same sort of things. Don't be too academic, speak from your own experiences, use your own voice. And from taking his class's perspective instead of catering to it, Tim realized that firsthand. His students responded way less to his perceived authority as a so-called creativity expert and way more to you know, his actual creativity. So as a guy who, you know, came up in a newsroom writing, you know, weekly newspapers, what did you do to get into that mindset of, you know, someone who has never lived without the internet? One of the things that was really helpful is I prototyped the book through iterations of this class. So um, I asked them, you know, and I saw firsthand what were the struggles. It's just like staying in touch with what's life like as a, as a 22-year-old, as a 21-year-old, um, what are their struggles and what are their fears and their hopes, and how is that different than someone who's 40 and 50 and grew up in a different way? It is, it is easy to lose touch with that if you're not constantly in, in dialogue and conversation with that group. So as a journalist, to kind of go back to your question, is like the, it's the art of just asking questions. Of course, most authors aren't collecting their ideal reader's reflection questions every single week. I had the benefit of having a class. You know, I'm not just writing a book blindly of like, oh, I think that a 21-year-old should definitely know about this. <laughs> I would have reflection questions every week. I would have discussions of like, what, what's stressing them out? You know, what's, uh, what are they worried about? Um, I can, I can see that. I can see that in their faces. They tell me about it. And even with all that, taking a different generation's perspective took Tim years in what also seemed to be its own creative journey. You know, and that was a, that was a process of a couple of years before I even wrote the book. Um, my first classes, you know, were just iterations of this. And, and so I learned, learned them what they needed to know or what, what I thought they needed to know just by constantly being in touch with them. But that's a journey anyone can take 
whether from the front of a college class or your own bedroom, switching perspectives in the same way we've been doing for centuries. Reading. So what is the right way to read, really? Well, we all know it helps to learn in a structure, so here's the structure most of those essays would suggest. Start by thinking about the context. Why did the author write it? What is its purpose? Is it something you'd write yourself? Who was it written for? And under what circumstances would they most likely be reading it? If I try to teach something in September, in early September, it's going to go over much different if I try to teach that same thing in late November. <laughs> right? <laughs> like the rhythms of how people's perceptions, what they can fit in their brain, how tired they are, how excited they are, what the weather's like, what their friends are doing, what the outside world is preoccupied in, all of those impact how you, uh, you know, where your mind is at. So I wanted to reflect that in the book. Then think about the structure. When do the ideas make the most sense? Where are they the most confusing? What could the author have done to make them clearer? Are the transitions in language effective? How does the author present their perspectives and move between ideas? And basically, does it have a framework? I had each chapter correspond to the who, what, when, where, why, or how. And finally, you're supposed to ask yourself how the author supports their perspective. What kind of evidence do they use? Statistics, quotes, personal anecdotes, other people's stories? How well do they support their point, and could they support it better? So, in other words, this season so far is a perfect example of reading like a writer. Take a piece of writing, look at its background, its structure, and research, decide whether the author's choices are effective and appropriate, and use that information to better your own writing. Because one day, readers, consciously or not, will do the same to you. The choices you're making now will either resonate with them, or push them away. And the only way to see yourself from that perspective is to see others first. That's the biggest reason is like, it, it's, I just love to read. You know, if I, if I didn't love to read, then why would I be a writer? <laughs> like, why would I think <laughs> that other people would want to read my book if I didn't want to read other people's books? Reading like a writer isn't just a new phenomenon in writing classrooms. Today, it's practically its own industry, albeit a very specialized one. If you care enough about publishing to listen to this podcast, you've probably heard of sensitivity readers, which, depending on who you ask, are either the industry's saving grace or a boogeyman that exists only to make you feel bad about enjoying Heart of Darkness or the complete works of H.P. Lovecraft. Sensitivity readers have even crossed over into the actual news lately. Pushback Against American Dirt, a best-selling book about undocumented immigrants written by a white woman, led to the cancellation of its publicity tour. Chinese author Courtney Milan was expelled from the Romance Writers of America for calling out another author's racial insensitive smut novel from the 90s. And the less said about J.K. Rowling's recent tweets, the better. The point is, people inside the industry and out are talking about the professionals paid to read manuscripts through diverse eyes. It's up to you whether you think sensitivity readers are worth it or not. Francine Prose herself criticized them for discouraging writers to explore different perspectives. But... Careful and plentiful representation on the page doesn't just improve your own ideas, it also expands the audience you'll reach. And by looking at Tim's early drafts, we can see just how easy it is to misrepresent experiences you haven't lived yourself. But Tim, in the end, didn't need sensitivity readers to expand his perspective. He simply read like a writer. I'm just curious how that that kind of like reviewer's eye translates over into then incorporating books into your own work. Yeah. Um, so like 
here's an example is uh, when I was writing this book, I knew like one of the critiques of the hero's journey is in traditional myth, it can be very focused on like the male perspective. Um, or at least maybe that's what people like focus on as a hero. And I wanted a more holistic, diverse perspective of what hero means to really um, kind of broaden that concept of, of um, society's version of the hero. And when I was working with the illustrator, I wanted the figure on the front of the book not to look male or female, but could be what people want to project onto that character based on their own journey. And so we made a couple of different uh, versions of that cover. And the the character in the front and in the book is wearing like kind of a robe. I wanted people who are reading this to be like, I, I'm going to take my own journey and make it my own. You know, whatever kind of baggage other heroes' journey narratives might have, this is going to be my hero's journey. Um, these days, we we also have like this phenomenon of like um, you know like sensitivity readers. Was that ever something that crossed your mind? This idea of like. Um, you know, getting other people's perspectives on your work that, you know, you might not have naturally? You know, I, I think that kind of probably happened organically and it's part of working in academia where you're surrounded by a lot of different voices and perspectives. Like there was a part in there where I talk about Wonder Woman and flipping the script and changing the narrative of the hero's journey. That was inspired by an essay uh, from a professor who I work with. Um, so I incorporated that into one of my chapters where it talks about flipping the script and changing, you know, sort of maybe these dominant narratives or things that might seem traditional or ingrained and hearing more voices and hearing different voices. You know, for me, it happened organically by being around a bunch of different voices and also reading widely as much as I can. Reading widely has been, is, and will always be the best way to see from others' perspectives. And doing so is the only way to really make sure your writing will resonate with anyone else. You know, sometimes when I'm reading books, I'm like, okay, well, is this inclusive? So one of one of the books I reviewed, and I put this in my review, was like, there's there's some really um, focus on male characters, and the female characters are kind of token characters in this in this 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 hero's journey of his. But I was like, you know, if I if I was a woman reading this, the females are really tokenized in in this journey. Um, so I thought the story was okay, but I you know was reading it from a perspective of what would the audience get out of it or what would, what would it be lacking? And I wanted to be something that the audience, you know, regardless of where they were coming from, it would resonate. And so, you know, kind of seeing some examples of where that's fallen short from others, I was like, how can, how can this do better? When you pick up a book, you're getting the complete package. But in this podcast, we've covered just how much goes into it behind the scenes. Reading like a writer is an excellent reminder of this. Everyone has their own creative process, everyone has their own perspective, and everyone goes through the same stages on the journey to share them. You should feel kind of, you know, the euphoria of breakthroughs and that sort of thing, but also realize that just around the corner, there will be a setback. And that doesn't just mean like you're suffering for your art. It also means that if you have a setback, there are actual things you can do to break through. Um, There's actually a rhythm to it um, from what I've observed. And that rhythm exists not only on the pages of a best-selling book, but in real life. Using your own creativity to share other people's stories is a heroic journey, no matter what form it takes. Taking in other people's perspectives is the best way to understand your own. It got bigger and bigger and bigger, and I had more and more to say and more to do. And I wanted to uh, take what I had and see where else it could apply and see what else I could do with it. And because it got to be such a 
um, you know, a bigger uh, scale project than what I thought. I was like, okay, well, this could be a book. I, this should be a book. But once Tim realized his writing could be more than just a curriculum, he had to convince more than just his students to learn from him. Next week, we talk about a challenge faced by all nonfiction authors, making people care about what you have to say. You know, it's again, kind of meta, but like I used the framework itself to write it. And now I'm using the framework to think about promoting it. Brought to you by Readsy, this is Bestseller. Over the course of this season, we'll follow an indie author's journey from start to finish in five chapters, exploring each step it takes to turn real life into a compelling read. Next up is season four, chapter four, Branding Yourself. This episode was written, hosted, and produced by me, Casimir M. Stone. If you liked it, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Our guest this season is Tim Sigalski. You can purchase his book, The Creative Journey, on Amazon. And you can check out his other works of nonfiction on Twitter at C-I-G-E-L-S-K-E, on Medium at T-E-E Cycle Tim, and at a variety of other outlets, including Runner's World, The AV Club, and Reedsy Discovery. This podcast, like so many self-published books out there, is made possible by Readsy, a marketplace that connects indie authors with the tools that traditional publishing houses would usually provide, such as editors, book cover designers, and publicists. You can learn more about Readsy on Instagram at Readsy underscore HQ, on Twitter at Readsy HQ, or online at R-E-E-D-S-Y dot com. 